Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Have you ever wondered how to incorporate more animal-friendly practices into your daily lives? There's so many ways and things we can do to help animals, and so many easy things we can do that can make a difference for dogs and cats and wildlife and even farm animals. And what better time to start than now, at the beginning of a new year? So in recognition of the new year, Animals Today compiled a list of things you might consider doing to improve the lives of our animal friends. And I'm going to try to address each item on the list on upcoming shows. And for today, let's start with something I find to be really easy, actually a lot easier than I thought, and that is to purchase only cruelty-free cosmetics and household products. There are a lot of products out there, and these include your cosmetics, personal care items, household products, and pet care products, which are tested on animals. Countless animals are subjected to cruel tests each year so people can have a new and improved lipstick or shampoo or whatever. And the tests on animals can be skin and eye irritation and burn tests where chemicals are rubbed onto the animals or dripped into the eyes of animals. We also like to force feed animals for long periods of time to see if they develop cancer or force feed animals to swallow large amounts of chemicals to see at what dose it will kill them and other hard to imagine testing and experimenting we do on animals. It's insane. And it's just so sad that our country continues to conduct these cruel and painful experiments on dogs, cats, rabbits, mice, and other animals, when humane, modern alternatives are available that are less costly, faster, and more predictive for humans. We know testing on animals is unreliable and ineffective, and it doesn't guarantee consumer safety. And what a test means on an animal we torture does not mean the human is going to react the same way, right? It's not predictive of what it's going to mean on a human. I mean, it's just unnecessary cruelty. So why do we continue to test on animals? According to Cruelty Free International, Despite progress in humane product testing and bans on animal testing for cosmetics in other countries, the United States has no national law prohibiting the use of animals in cosmetics testing. I recently received a press release from the humane side of the United States, which reads in part, hundreds of beauty companies around the globe, including the market-leading partners Unilever, L'Oreal, Procter & Gamble, Avon, Lush, and a growing number of cosmetic ingredient suppliers now support an end to cosmetics animal testing. These companies support an end to animal testing because they know it's not necessary. To date, 40 countries have passed laws to ban or limit such tests. So I find it incredible that the United States and Canada, by the way, have not yet modernized cosmetics regulations to end cruel experiments on animals. And one might think, well, wait a minute. Isn't animal testing legally required for cosmetics to be sold in the United States? The answer is no. The FDA does not require that animal tests be conducted to demonstrate that the cosmetics are safe. 
And just so we're all on the same page here, by cosmetics, we're talking about your skincare products like skin lotions and creams, your hair care products, your shampoo and whatever else you put in your hair, all your beauty facial makeup and lipsticks, and fragrances, perfumes. And by the way, you can have a product that was not tested on animals, right? But the ingredients that were used to formulate the finished product were tested on animals, so a cruelty-free company, a brand that is cruelty-free, tests neither its finished products nor the ingredients used in its finished products on animals. I'm going to read to you what is on the FDA website, right? This is right from the FDA website. This is the cruelty-free slash not tested on animals page. Consumers sometimes ask about use of claims such as, quote, cruelty-free, or, quote, not tested on animals, on cosmetic labeling. Oh, okay, it says it's not tested on animals, so I'm going to buy it because it makes me feel like I'm doing something good for the animals. Good marketing strategy, right? You can't believe labels. Don't believe labels. Some cosmetic companies, again, this is right off the FDA website, promote their products with claims of this kind, that they're cruelty-free or not tested on animals, in their labeling or advertising. The unrestricted use of these phrases by cosmetic companies is possible because there are no legal definitions for these terms. Also, listen to this. Some companies may apply such claims solely to their finished cosmetic products. However, these companies may rely on raw material suppliers or contract laboratories to perform any animal testing necessary to substantiate product or ingredient safety. Other cosmetic companies may rely on combinations of scientific literature, non-animal testing, raw material safety testing, or controlled human use testing to substantiate their product safety. Many raw materials, I'm still reading from the website, many raw materials used in cosmetics were tested on animals years ago when they were first introduced. A cosmetic manufacturer might only use those raw materials and base their, quote, cruelty-free claims on the fact that the materials or products are not currently tested on animals, okay? Where do you think the worst most unimaginable kinds of testing on animals is done. Where do you think animals are the most abused in the world? Just another way to phrase that question. And I'm talking in every aspect, not just animal experimentation, animals in entertainment, captive animals in zoos, bears being captured and caged for their bile, and millions of dogs and cats are slaughtered in horrific ways for their meat, and dogs, cats, and foxes skinned and slaughtered for their fur. Where? China. China is so f backwards with respect to animal welfare. Currently, there are no nationwide laws that explicitly prohibit the mistreatment of animals. So you can essentially do whatever the hell you want to an animal in China. According to Animals Asia, listen to this. It's estimated that in China alone, 10 million dogs and 4 million cats are slaughtered for the dog meat trade each year. That's the Asian dog meat trade and dog meat festivals in China. 
And not only are there no laws in China that prohibit the abuse and horror these animals face, but in addition, animal testing is mandatory. China remains one of the few countries in the world to require, require animal tests for beauty products. According to the Humane Society of the United States, the Chinese government conducts mandatory animal tests on all cosmetic products imported into the country. The government may also conduct animal tests on items pulled from store shelves. Therefore, even if a cosmetics company does not test their products or ingredients on animals, if they sell their products in China, they cannot be considered cruelty-free. How do you like that? So what can you do? Don't support this cruelty. Purchase cruelty-free products. How do you know which products are not tested on animals? How do you know if a product is certified to be cruelty-free? Well, there's something called the Leaping Bunny Guide. This is a list of cruelty-free brands compiled by the Coalition for Consumer Information on Cosmetics. So you can go right onto the website. It's the Leaping Bunny Guide to check to see if the cosmetics you buy and all your personal care and household and pet care companies that you purchase are listed in the guide. And if a product you buy is not there, then consider purchasing a similar product from another company on the list. But I'll tell you that many of the companies on this list will make it easy for consumers by putting the Leaping Bunny logo right on their product. So you know right there in the store that a specific product is cruelty-free. You've seen the Leaping Bunny logo, right? Also on Humane Society of the United States website, it has an informative infographic which you can download with details on how to interpret labels and ensure the products you are buying are cruelty-free. And I'll just tell you that on this informative page, it states, there are no regulations preventing companies from making claims such as, quote, no animal testing or, quote, cruelty-free on their products. Language such as not tested on animals or cruelty-free may only refer to the finished product, not the ingredients. Check the Leaping Bunny list. If the company is not listed, ask the company whether it meets the Leaping Bunny criteria. So cruelty-free means does not test products or ingredients on the animals. Also, the company doesn't commission animal testing or sell their products in China where animal testing is required. So without sacrificing or compromising too much, you can become a more compassionate consumer and help spread the word. You'll really be doing something good for the animals. What a great New Year's resolution. Okay, more with the show right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animals Today. Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pets eat. Onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs don't eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. 
So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking. So don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Welcome back to the show. Okay, Peter, we always have fun with animal idioms. Have you heard of the idiom, one horse pony? <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> Fox, News, good. Fox News reporter Peter Ducey asked President-elect Joe Biden if he thought that the allegations about Hunter Biden's emails were a Russian disinformation smear campaign. And Biden replied, yes, gotta love you, man. You are a one horse pony. Yeah, that's so good. Now, I know Biden meant it to be a subtle insult, but I think he got the saying wrong. Presumably, he meant to say one One trick trick pony, pony, right? So that's like a person who has only one talent or one achievement. You know how one trick pony was derived? Oh, let's see. I'm going to say in the Old West. From the circus. A circus featuring a pony that has only been trained to perform one trick is not very entertaining. Okay. That's how. Okay. Scientists in Florida are studying if it's safe to eat pythons. And if it is safe, python might be a new menu item in Florida restaurants. As you probably know, Burmese pythons are invasive species in the Everglades and have posed a risk to native wildlife in southern Florida. Pythons are not native to the state and began appearing in the Everglades in the 1980s. Why? Because of people ignorant humans who decided it would be a good idea to get a python as a pet. Ignorant humans, that's a redundant statement. That's funny. And then they realize that their baby python grows to be 20 feet long, so they release it. So these pythons are escaped or purposely released pets, and they're everywhere in the Everglades. Pythons are non-venomous. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission encourages residents to remove and humanely kill pythons when they can at any time during the year and to report any sightings to officials. There is a python elimination program, which has already removed 6,000 pythons from the Everglades. One of the program's python hunters, Donna Khalil, said, when pythons are safe to eat, they can actually be quite delicious. Khalil is the first female hunter in the python removal program, according to Kirkland, and she has so far captured and euthanized 473 pythons. She uses a mercury test kit she bought online to confirm that they're safe to eat. She then turns their white meat into food. First, she uses a pressure cooker to make the meat soft and tender. Later, she adds pasta sauce, chili, or stir fry. She also likes turning the snakes into jerky. 
She says, it's really good when you cook it right, Khalil told CNN. This would be a wonderful way to get more people involved with helping us remove pythons from the environment. It would be a good thing for people to hunt and eat them, but we need to make sure they're safe first. Mm. Anyway, Florida scientists are looking at mercury levels in the snakes to determine if they can be safely consumed. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission says if they can determine pythons are safe to eat, it would help control their population. whole thing is so unfortunate and, and uh, really sad. I mean, it's true these invasive uh, species are ruining, or have ruined the Everglades, and the little mammals are gone pretty much. And then uh, if you're going to, you can't relocate the snakes. We've talked about that. There's nowhere for them to go. So if you accept that they need to be killed, then eating them, I guess, is justifiable on some level. But the whole enterprise gives me the willies. Yeah. Besides the mercury. I didn't know they concentrated mercury, or is that just like uh, trying to figure that out now? Yeah, that's a good point. And for the Wildlife Conservation Commission to encourage people to, quote, humanely kill the pythons... you can't give free range of just go ahead and kill these these yeah. animals yeah. humanely. You, everyone has a different definition, right. and Technique, right? And, uh, yeah. Oh, it's too bad. Um, did you hear that Cleveland Indians have decided to change their team name? Okay, uh, an animal is an option, maybe. Well, as you know, it's been criticized for being a racial slur and demeaning and the Cleveland baseball franchise by the way has been known as the Indians since 1915. Yeah. According to the New York Times, other professional sports teams including the Atlanta Braves, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Chicago Blackhawks have said in recent months that they have no plans to change their names. Many universities and high schools abandoned Native American names and mascots long ago, but efforts to address the names at all levels of sports in the United States have increased in recent months. Apparently yeah. the team has consulted with many Native American groups, both in Ohio and nationally, here are some of the names that are being talked about. Cleveland Spiders and Cleveland Crows, also Cleveland Guardians, Cleveland Buckeyes, and Cleveland Naps. Naps. I don't know. Uh, Why Naps? I don't know. I don't know. How about the kittens? That would be most appropriate. Cleveland Kittens. Yeah. Oh, that's good. They play like kittens. (laughs) A baby elephant was hit by a motorcycle while crossing a road in Thailand. Don't worry, the story has a great ending. A Mr. Mana Stravate, who's an off-duty rescue worker, was called to the scene and he started giving chest compressions to this baby elephant who's just lying in the road. And you can see the video online as it went viral. The baby elephant stood up after about 10 minutes of resuscitation and then was taken to another location for treatment. Wow. And then the baby was returned to the scene of the accident in hopes of being reunited with his mother. And apparently the elephant was reunited with his family when the mother heard her baby calling out. Mr. Mana told Reuters, it's my instinct to save lives, but I was worried the whole time because I can hear the mother and other elephants calling for the baby. I assumed where an elephant heart would be located based on human theory and video clip I saw online, he said. That's resourceful. Really? Yeah. And I don't know if you're interested in how the guy on the motorcycle's doing after no, crashing into the baby elephant. I don't care. He's doing just fine. Minor don't injuries. Don't care. Okay, Lori, thank you for that. I think uh, these animal names in pro sports teams that they're going to become more popular 
I mean, what do you, what do you choose from, you know? Are we offending the animals, though? Well, it depends. You know, if you win, they'd be proud. Okay, more with animals today after the break. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner with Animals Today. Today's Animals Today Minute is about giraffe hunting. Within the limitless grassy African plains lies the mighty giraffe, sharing its home with zebras, antelope, lions, cheetahs, and various other animals that make their home in the heart of Africa. These beautiful creatures face deforestation, agricultural conversion, and poaching. Their population has declined at least 40% over the past decade. Today, there are only approximately 80,000 giraffe left in the world. Giraffe numbers are shrinking, and their conservation status is vulnerable on the IUCN red list of threatened species, and the killing of these docile vegetarians continues. Besides the pressure of habitat loss, legal hunting and illegal poaching both occur. Giraffe trophy hunting tourism can be lucrative for the operators and can charge as much as $15,000 for a trip guaranteeing a kill. Illegal sport hunting is also reported to be prevalent. And poachers continue their own killing, seeking meat and coats primarily. Another factor contributing to the poaching crisis is the use of parts of the tail as a dowry to the fathers of prospective brides in certain cultures. The animals are literally being killed just to obtain the tail. And, as we've heard before, enforcement of wildlife protection laws is extremely challenging. So please check out the important work of Giraffe Conservation Foundation, African Wildlife Foundation, World Wildlife Foundation, and Wildlife Conservation Society to learn more and to see how you can help protect these gentle giants. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that was your Animals Today Minute. back to animals today there's this phrase you sometimes hear doggy dementia which is an everyday term for cognitive dysfunction syndrome in dogs but what does it really mean and how is dementia in dogs diagnosed and can it be prevented or treated to find out more about dementia in dogs i'm very pleased to welcome board certified neurologist stephen hansen who runs the veterinary neurology center in palm desert california welcome to the program dr hansen Hi, thanks for having me. So, Stephen, doggy dementia, this is a real entity, different from just a dog getting older, correct? Right. It's not not really a normal aging change. It's more consistent with, like, Alzheimer's and people. There are a lot of similarities between the two conditions. And how common is it? Well, some estimates say about 50% of dogs over the, year, over the age of 11 can show some signs of cognitive dysfunction syndrome. And then once a dog reaches 15 to 16 years old, the percentage of incidence goes up to about 68%. So a fair, fair number of dogs that get to that age will show some symptoms of cognitive dysfunction. And what are the symptoms? And especially, what are the early symptoms we can look out for? Yeah, the early symptoms can be kind of hard to detect because, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell if a dog is really disoriented or not. Definitely when it becomes more advanced, you'll see things like a dog getting lost in the house or not recognizing people they normally would recognize. Um, 
oftentimes they also have disruption of their sleep-wake cycle. So they may sleep all day and then be up wandering aimlessly around the house at night. Uh, sometimes they'll lose house training. And then occasionally a dog with dementia will have some anxiety and be a little bit agitated. Mm. It can start as early as about seven years of age, although with most dogs it uh, starts much later. Stephen, are there other degenerative diseases that cause cognitive decline in younger dogs? Well, just about anything that affects the brain can create symptoms that mimic cognitive dysfunction. So things like a brain tumor, an infection in the brain, um, immune disease in the brain, those can cause disorientation, um, behavioral changes that can look like cognitive dysfunction. But definitely, if a dog younger than seven were to show symptoms like that, uh, we would really want to do some tests to rule out other things. And how about aggression? Can that develop? It's unlikely that cognitive dysfunction syndrome is going to turn a placid dog into an aggressive dog. However, they can be more easily startled. And oftentimes, dogs with cognitive dysfunction also are losing their hearing, maybe their vision isn't the best, and so um, they can be startled and they may be a little more prone to snap. So I think that some caution has to be exercised around a dog like that, but it's unlikely that they're going to start aggressively uh, you know, going after people. How do you diagnose the condition? It's mainly diagnosed off of the history, you know, having symptoms consistent with cognitive dysfunction. Um, but a really important part of diagnosing it is to rule out other things that can cause similar problems or similar symptoms. So a good examination by a veterinarian is really important and maybe also some lab work because other diseases like liver dysfunction can make a dog disoriented. Sometimes dogs with eye problems can have visual deficits where they look disoriented. And then also dogs with um, painful conditions like degenerative joint disease, they may be more reclusive and less interactive with people. So if an underlying disease like that can be identified and treated, um, you know, maybe the dog can be restored back to a normal level of function and uh, be a happy pet again. If medical conditions are ruled out, then it really takes an MRI to diagnose canine cognitive dysfunction because like I mentioned, things like a brain tumor can really mimic the symptoms of cognitive dysfunction. So um, that might be treated with a variety of uh, means. Um, And there are things that we can see on an MRI that would be very indicative of the brain degeneration that we see with cognitive dysfunction syndrome. Are there breeds of dogs more susceptible to getting doggy dementia? There's really no breed predisposition. It can happen in small dogs and large dogs. Um, both sexes are affected, so there's, uh, there's no way to select for a dog to avoid uh, cognitive dysfunction. And no research showing mixed breeds might be less likely to get it? No, because it's not fully understood how the disease develops. You know, there are certain 
um, parts of the pathophysiology that have been worked out, like there's free radical um, production and there's uh, deposition of a neurotoxic protein called beta amyloid. But we don't really understand why dogs, why some dogs develop beta amyloid more quickly than others. There may be some sort of genetic predisposition, but at this point, we don't really know. And Stephen, describe how this disease progresses. Uh, the end stages of dementia in people are pretty horrible. Yeah, unfortunately, it can be pretty sad as a dog really loses interaction with the family. Um, they may spend more time sleeping, and eventually they may stop eating and drinking. So you know, that can produce all sorts of other serious symptoms. Discuss treatment of dementia in dogs. Yeah. There are basically three things that can be done to address dementia and slow its progression. Unfortunately, there's nothing to be done to cure it, but it, it can be slowed. And one of the ways that can be done is just with environmental enrichment. So, you know, new toys, regular exercise, a lot of interaction, um, that sort of thing can improve the mental function. So a dog that really has no stimulation is more likely to have more rapidly progressive dementia. Then there's some nutritional things that can be done. Uh, certain supplements like antioxidants, omega-3 fatty acids, um, ginkgo biloba has been looked at. Those things might slow the progression. And in fact, there are a couple of uh, food companies that have made special diets, like there's Hills BD, uh, which has these sort of antioxidants in it that may slow the progression of dementia. And these things, and then the third, yeah, oh, go ahead, please. Uh, the third way is with medication. Unfortunately, there really is no medication that is consistently effective. Um, there's a medication called Anapril, also known as Selegiline or Eldepranil, and that's been um, approved for use in dogs to treat cognitive dysfunction. In testing of that drug, about 69% of dogs treated with it showed some improvement in their mental function. Interestingly, the placebo group in that study had about a 52% improvement just with the placebo. So it's hard to know for sure how much that drug works. The other thing that we know uh, Anapril does is it causes more stimulation, both Anapril and its metabolites, which are amphetamine and methamphetamine, can just cause more arousal. So sometimes those dogs may be alert, they may be more active, doesn't necessarily mean they're uh, you know, having better mental function. Dr. Hansen, is there any evidence that dementia in dogs can be prevented or delayed in any way by enriching the lives or diets of dogs, like the things that you mentioned that could slow the progression of the disease? Is there anything we can do to prevent the disease? Yeah, I think intuitively, based on what we know about the pathology, things like enrichment, good healthy diets, you know, all-around vitamin supplements, those things make a lot of sense. I don't think there have been any long-term studies to look at dogs, um, you know, who had substandard diets compared to dogs with good diets and how that changed the outcome and increased uh, prevalence of dementia. But I think that it makes sense that 
having a lot of interaction, um, an active lifestyle, a lot of um, engagement with people and other animals is healthy for a dog's mental function its whole life. Dr. Stephen Hansen, thank you for appearing on Animals Today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. More with Animals Today right after the break. Today's Animals Today Minute is about three of the largest birds on Earth. Did you know that the ostrich is the world's largest bird? It's true. The ostrich typically weighs between 140 pounds and 350 pounds, and the adult stands six to nine feet tall. Ostriches are also the fastest two-legged animal on land. They can run up to 60 miles per hour and sustain that pace for quite a while. Commensurate with their size, the eggs of ostriches are the largest of all bird eggs, weighing about three pounds each and measuring six inches long. Their huge eyes, about two inches across, are the largest of any land animal, but also larger than their own brains. They allow the detection of slight movements of potential predators from great distances. Their relatives are cassowaries, emus, kiwis, and rheas. The wandering albatross, or the snowy albatross, is the largest living flying bird. It has the largest wingspan of any bird, exceeding 11 feet in some individuals. They fly distances of up to 75,000 miles in a single year, adding up to 15 million miles over one's life. That's some serious mileage. An adult male weighs up to 25 pounds. The wandering albatross employs a flight technique called dynamic soaring to conserve calories and harness the wind's energy to soar beautifully above open waters. And they have a special gland located above their nasal passages, which allows them to regulate their body's salt balance by excreting a concentrated saline solution from it. Recently, their numbers have been rapidly declining, putting them on the red list for conservation status. The emperor penguin is the largest and heaviest species of penguin and is native to Antarctica. They weigh up to 100 pounds and stand 45 inches in height. Like all penguins, they are flightless. Their bodies are exquisitely hydrodynamic and they have strong flippers, both of which make them excellent swimmers. They can swim up to speeds of 12 miles per hour. Emperor penguins can also dive deeper than any other bird and they can hold their breath for more than 20 minutes. The emperor penguins share their labor when it comes to preparing for the young, with the male taking care of newly laid eggs. During that time, male penguins eat nothing for more than two months. The females search for food in the open oceans, collect it in their bellies, and regurgitate the swallowed food for the newly hatched chicks. Emperor penguins all look virtually identical, which makes individual recognition very difficult. To overcome this, emperor penguins have evolved different sounding voices and the ability to recognize the unique voices of their mates or chicks. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. You know, 2020, the crazy year that it was, uh, many of us are doing new experiences, uh, eating foods online that we've never ordered before, having to provide care for our children and our pets in new novel ways. One of the things we had to do was to figure out how to groom one of our cats. Elton's a long hair, beautiful boy. And, uh, 
He does shed, but that was not the issue. What we found is that he's much more uh, comfortable when he has a short coat. And uh, so we let it grow for six, 12 months and usually have the mobile groomer come to the house and shuttle him out there. And then, you know, 30 minutes later, he's a happy, short-haired cat. And it also, of course, uh, gets rid of the mats, which can be a problem and inevitably come, even, you know, no matter what we do. So here we are as the uh, summer goes by and mobile groomer is not working and it seems that maybe we'll try doing it ourselves. So we watched some videos and watched some reviews of products. Basically, you need an electric clipper and a helper or a cooperative cat and some uh, patience. And uh, it was a little scary, I have to say, but we got a clipper. It seemed to be working well. It's a battery operated, uh, moderate, sort of in, moderately industrial looking. And uh, amazingly, Elton, he sort of eased into it. And uh, uh, so fortunately, Elton was uh, surprisingly a cooperative. Uh, Lori was there working with me. I ended up doing initially most of the handling of the device, and she was keeping him nice and calm, although uh, later she uh, took the clipper and got pretty good at it. So the device, it's got, uh, you know, regular hair fur clippers, and it's got these guards to protect you from going too close to the skin. And you have to get sort of used to working with them and to knowing how much they protect you versus allowing you to really cut what you want. And then what we found is really taking our time and not turning it on and off. Suddenly the on and off sound was a, a little annoying. And then gradually, gradually uh, doing a section at a time and taking it real slow and easy. It's slow and it does cause a lot of hair to get flown in the air. So we were both wearing masks, which was helpful. The other thing we found is that getting through some of the mats was really a challenge. This was, I think, meeting the limits of our uh, device's power. And we sort of had to nibble at the mat rather than just sort of slicing through it um, like you would like to. That took a while to learn a technique that, that would work, but you could sort of scrape and nibble at it. And that sort of worked. It takes a while. Uh, danger areas, you know, around the bottom, you got to be real gentle. And some areas we just, you know, couldn't do quite as well as we wanted. But when we were done, uh, we had, well, it was sort of not a nice, smooth, even cut, right? It was a little jaggedy and a little ratty, but it was short and very uh, manageable. And Elton was uh, much happier. And uh, I have to say, it was a little achievement. We both felt a little sense of achievement that we were able to learn how to do this sort of specialized skill. Uh, you never know how your cat's going to react. And then we'd get so nervous, we thought we would, you know, convey that to him and he would just hide and that would be the end of it. But we worked through it. It took a couple of sessions over two or three days to do it in initially. And uh, that's one of our achievements from 2020. We're proud of that one. <laughs> You're right, Peter. It was scary. I just was worried we were going to cut him or or emotionally scar him or frighten him. Yeah, yeah. But he, he likes it. And he was a good boy. He was really good. He was a good boy. Didn't try to bite us. Didn't try to scratch us. He really was a yeah. good boy. No blood. Why do cats meow? Mm. One of our cats, Margarita, would glare at me and let out a very loud and angry meow. And it was very 
obvious to me. She was telling me, mommy, you better feed me now. And even as she saw me starting to prepare a meal and knowing she was going to get it within 60 seconds, the meows would still get louder and angrier. Right, Peter? Angry. Like to say, mommy, you're just not moving fast enough for me. Have you ever noticed that cats rarely meow at other cats? Cats meow at humans, and it's their way of communicating with their people. Before cats were domesticated like 10,000 years ago, wild cats communicated through their sense of smell or by rubbing against or urinating on objects like trees. Since humans don't have the incredible sense of smell as cats, cats need to find a way to communicate with their humans in a way that is most likely to get them what they want. So they meow. John Wright, a psychologist studying animal behavior at Mercy University in Georgia, says cats are manipulative and vocal communication becomes their tool. Isabel Wickcomb, the author of an article in Live Science, writes, many cats even develop a repertoire of meows to express different needs and feelings or elicit different responses. For example, your cat might trill at you in greeting, squeak a friendly request to go outside, or demand food with a loud meow. She points out that feral cats really don't have this behavior of meowing. One study shows that feral cats were much more likely to growl or hiss than domesticated cats who had owners. So meowing at us humans is partially a learned behavior in cats because they learn that meowing at you gets your attention. Talking about the cat's meow, Peter, yeah, yeah. did you know there's so many idioms that include a reference to cats, probably more than any other animal. A cat nap, yep. a cat burglar, a copycat, a cool cat, a scaredy cat. I got to get you involved, Peter. Okay. What do you call a wealthy or powerful person? A fat cat. Yes. Have you heard of a cat in gloves catches no mice? I know that phrase. Like if you're too polite or too careful, you might not achieve what you want. How about... As nervous as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Rocking chairs, chairs I know that one. Right? Yeah. Implying yeah. cats don't want to be in a room with rocking chairs as their tails might be rocked on. What's the idiom, Peter, that describes by being curious, you may find something you don't want to know or might hurt you if you find out? Curiosity killed the cat. Very good. Have you heard of dog my cats? Dog my cats. It's an expression of astonishment. Oh, wow. Dog my cats. What might you say to describe two people who are constantly fighting? Oh, like cats and dogs? Fighting yes. Like cats? Okay. Why aren't you saying anything? You're speechless. Because the cat has my tongue. Good. Yeah. You mistakenly reveal a secret. Cat's out of the bag. Very good. Peter, you look agitated or extremely nervous and fidgety. You're like a... Like a cat on a hot tin. Yes. Ah. It's used to refer to a difficult or impossible task. It's like... Herding. Yes. Herding cats. Wow. Peter, you look like the cat that swallowed the canary. <laughs> you can say this when yeah. a person walks into a room. It's supposed to be a little insulting, I think. Look what the... Oh, what the cat dragged in. Yes. Well, you're the cat's pajamas. What does that mean? Oh, yeah. You're the cool thing. Yeah. Cool cat. Okay. Cats meow. Bees knees. <laughs> Bees knees. So without supervision, your kids are going to do what they want. Yeah. Cats away, mice will play. Peter, you are the cat's meow. 
And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.